What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Valley, freshly returned from my vacation. It was probably not as relaxing as it should have been. It included the usual tug of war between me trying to unplug and then uh, my wife noting that I did a terrible job of unplugging and that it was frustrating to watch. Still, it was relaxing overall. It's good to be back insofar as you care about me being able to hit the the reset button a little bit. I appreciate everyone who has tuned into these what if podcasts, those mini pods, they uh, bombed. Uh, but hey, we're experimenting here. And that's why I decided to record something in advance of this final installment with the Southwest division. I also had FOMO with all the news that I felt like I just needed to catch up on and give some spew my takes on. But yes, I am back. We are going to be really cannonballing into team look aheads. There will be days where I release more than one podcast. Um, but those will be up and running beginning this Friday. We've already done the Rockets, the Thunder, and the Why Am I Blanking on the third one. There's another one up, but I can't remember what it is. But go check out the lookaheads on the landing page live as well. I built that, but I'd like to get out like five or so episodes of those. Uh, also, if this is your first time listening, if you're on the YouTube channel, hit subscribe. It means the world as we continue to build the channel. I know the What If Project bomb, but we go in-depth. We have all episodes, uh, all our episodes, excuse me, Aim to be thorough, and we do a great job covering the entire NBA around these parts. Also, if you're not subscribed to the audio version of this, that is where we're most popular still. Head over to iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Spotify. I don't know why I still call it iTunes. Hit that subscribe button. Ratings and reviews are appreciated. It means the world of you're downloading every episode. Feel free to recommend us, retweet our promos on Twitter. If you shout us out on Twitter, I will engage with you and retweet those comments as well. It's all appreciated. I fucking love you all, as I note at the beginning of every podcast. It is good to be back. Some of the news we have to cover, though, is not really all that good to be back uh, with. We'll begin with, I guess, some happy news. Uh, Robert Sarver has begun the process of looking for someone to purchase the Phoenix Suns. This felt like it was probably always the end game, even though uh, like Adam Silver had come out and said, uh, probably nothing that was inaccurate when he's saying that NBA owners have certain rights over just employees, but was not a great look for the league. Um, but even just handing out the sus- one year suspension and the fine, um, I do think that there was at least an element of the, the league or a, a subset of the league, uh, maybe not with the owners, but all, all the employees of the league office, when the Adam silver himself thinking that maybe silver, uh, Sarver would cave to public pressure. And I know a lot of people said most that they're actually surprised he did. I don't, I, I just felt like with the outrage and it's hard to kind of step aside from the, the Twitter bubble that we all live in. It really kind of felt like this was always going to head to that point or, or that maybe at the very least it wouldn't be swept under the rug or forgotten about like so many other controversies in the NBA are. Uh, I did chuckle in sort of a morbid way when I read the statement that Sarver had released This is the part that stands out, and I'm not just pull-quoting here. Uh, But Sarver said, As a man of faith, I believe in atonement and the path to forgiveness. I expected that the commissioner's one-year suspension would provide the time for me to focus, make amends, and remove my personal controversy from the teams that I and so many fans love. But in our current unforgiving climate, it has become painfully clear that that is no longer possible, that whatever good I have done or could still do is outweighed by things I have said in the past. For those reasons, I'm beginning the process of seeking the buyers for the Suns and Mercury. I would just like to say, on behalf of anyone who is a decent human being, fuck you, Robert Sarver. This is 
him complaining, him playing the victim, him crying cancel culture without mentioning mentioning cancel culture. And I've seen uh, like not necessarily counter arguments to this, but the whole thing is cancel culture is uh, it's just so accountability is not getting canceled. And this is if you want to talk about having the right to atone to make amends, it's a lot harder to believe someone leaning on that crutch insofar as they even should be in this situation. But when you look at Sarver, this was a pattern of behavior. It was repeated behavior, repeated offenses. And some of the claims, some of the allegations are as recent as 2021 based on the reporting that's out there. So this is something that has spanned from 2004 to 2021 that has been cyclical. It's been consistent. He is just someone who seems like a really crappy person. And it's not someone who learned his lesson. There were reports that he pushed back against the league's punishment in the first place, which was a year suspension and $10 million fine. That doesn't, that's not a harbinger of someone who has changed, who is actually looking to atone, who actually feels remorseful for the things that he said, for the things that he did. Shout out once again to the people that came forward, who suffered through all this over the years, who broke uh, you know, non-disclosure agreements at the time. I know a lot of them were thrown out the window once the law firm got involved, but it just takes a great deal of courage, a great deal of gall, of backbone to come forward and talk about what was clearly for many people just extremely painful experiences, parts of their lives. And Robert Sarver is once again just diminishing all of this and trying to play the victim here, and it's grotesque. It's just grotesque, and there's no other word for it. Uh, I would encourage people to listen to the Timeline podcast latest episode where they went into more detail about um, who might be among the candidates to to buy the team. Um, but I just think, look, this this is good news just to get him, Sarver, away from the league. What is interesting is he owns 35% of the team, and Baxter Holmes had tweeted that he does have the right as that sort of majority stakeholder to sell the entire team if he wants to. And it'll be uh, fascinating to see how that plays out in the sense that will he look to sell the entire team? I think he might just because theoretically it should probably drum up the total cost of the Suns, which then drums up the total money that uh, Sarver himself is getting. And so if you're part of if you're a, a ultra rich billionaire or even part of a larger um purchasing group i i think you would be willing to pay more up front for the entire team or the an actual majority of the team rather than just that minority share but also like being the majority stakeholder in general uh, on espn numbers were floated around at uh, as high as 3 or 4 billion i would probably Forbes valued the Suns at 1.8 million. And I think some of the numbers that feel more accurate or realistic would be if the entire team is sold, they can expect to fetch probably between two and two and a half billion. If it was more, I'd be fairly surprised, but not entirely shocked, just given how much NBA franchise values have skyrocketed. But get this guy all the way away from this league. And he's not the only just culpable party here. We need to see like if there's still going to be people at the top who helped enable this behavior, if not partook in it, um, that they will eventually be held responsible. And this is also just, we've we've seen things happen with the Mavericks in the past. We know what happened with Sterling and the Clippers. Like there is a toxic culture 
throughout the NBA when you're looking at the ownership ranks, as there tends to be when you're dealing with billionaires or in Sarver's case, like hundred millionaires. Uh, and like, just when you get to that scale of wealth and how you got there and there are stories floating around the league. So this is not just, Oh, the NBA is really getting rid of all the, the immoral owners. There's so many other discussions to have, but after what came to light and what's already been known before this investigation even unfolded in full, it's good that he's leaving. And I don't want to hear anyone whining that cancel culture is unfair and you believe in redemption. That That's great that you believe in redemption. Robert Sarver has not shown that he deserves the opportunity to redeem himself or that he has any interest in doing so. This was not just him doing or saying something one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, even a dozen times. These are just like dozens of like fucked up interactions that he had instances of abuse, verbal and physical with people who were employees that he was his subordinates, like however you want to frame it. And it was just so I said this on the, when I did record on vacation as an intro, like this just crossed so many of the, you know, immoral like bingo boxes off the list because he was dealing with issues of race and misogyny and they were physical altercations and verbal abuse and like sexual harassment just just disgusting and so get this guy all the way from the league don't allow him to play the victim this is big I'm, I'm happy for Suns fans i'm happy that this should make it at least a little bit easier for Suns players to have to deal with chris paul we saw came out and said something the onus was always going to fall on them to answer for this uh which is unfair but Robert Sarver can't wait for him to sell the team. And it's not a punishment. It's not a punishment. He paid, I think $400 million for his 35% stake of the Suns. Let's say he sells the entire team. Um, or if we're, let's say the Suns are valued at like $2.3 billion. Let's just use that conservatively. Uh, looking at someone who's going to get 800 over $800 million, double up on his investment. His punishment is that he just got to, you know, double his investment and make almost a billion dollars off this. And they do sell for like between three or four. Holy, holy, holy shit. Uh, so he is hopefully on the way out. Uh, I'm sure there's more to come from this, but shout out to Baxter Holmes as well for the reporting he did on this situation from the beginning. And, and as well, just all the people that that came forward, risked jobs or just had to, you know, reopen these wounds that were probably never fully healed or closed, but to have to relive a really tumultuous, turmoil and uh i i'm just endlessly impressed and and thankful frankly but endlessly grateful however you want to frame it uh for everyone who had come forward and just again it just shows a, a level of courage that we should all be able to appreciate uh so again let's just close with fuck you sarver the other thing one of the other things i wanted to touch upon this is kind of it's not old news but uh it happened while i was away and it happened just after adam and i had said that Anthony Edwards should probably be one of the more marketable stars in the league just based off his personality. Uh, he was fined $40,000 for using what the NBA called offensive and derogatory language. Um, the Again, the video of him using it, which has since been deleted, that came out while I was on vacation, not making an excuse for what we said. Clearly, we don't know him well enough to say that he should be you know, one of the more marketable stars in the NBA. If you have an issue with the fine, these things and the scale of them are usually collectively bargained. I think the real issue, aside from the fact that Anthony Edwards used this homophobic slur, homophobic slur, is I'm not like the classification of this offensive and derogatory language. Like, let's come out and call it what it is, is a homophobic slur, um, anti 
you know, anti-gay language. Like, let's be more specific about it, not generalize it. Um, members of the LGBTQIA plus community deserve to feel like their fandom matters, that this is a league that they can root for. And anytime this happens, that's a big L for the league when you're looking at their culture and how they want to present themselves. I know Anthony Edwards is young. Uh, that's part of the problem. The casuality with which these homophobic slurs are still tossed around just in general, I'm not talking about NBA locker rooms specifically, even in locker rooms uh, at all specifically just in life. Like the, they're still like the homophobic slurs are just used like way and all this der derogatory language that could be aimed at demeaning or insulting the LGBTQ IA plus community that's like it's damaging and it's still just all too prevalent and it's disgusting. Uh, there should be, I don't know if you want to call it harsher pun like punishments here financially. These are, they're all going to be for most of these guys to drop in the bucket. When you look at how much they're making, like maybe there should be just uh, classes. Like they should have to be, be forced to, to go through. And I don't want force feels like such a, a crappy way to spin this. You want something good to come from this. And that's, for the players to learn something and for the other players around them and for other people to learn something from this. And so should they have to, you know, undergo, it's like, I don't want to call it sensitivity training because this isn't something that you should have to grapple with emotionally or mentally like LGBTQIA, like that community, like they deserve to feel safe and they deserve to exist. And there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong. So it's just so, it still makes my skin crawl that we're in the year 2022. And this is just one form of, you know, prejudice among many that are, are going to make me sick still. And I just don't think it should be thrown out the window or just written off. And we've seen other players use this, even something like Nikola Jokic, I think in 2018 had an incident with um, using a homophobic slur. Uh, and then Aaron Gordon coming out and it was kind of tough. He had thumbs down quote tweeted and then deleted it. Thumbs down to the Anthony Edwards fine. And then he tweeted something along like to the effect of how can I be homophobic and then deleted that dude. I, unless the thumbs down was him trying to show that uh, he was not a fan of what Anthony Edwards said, like shut the fuck up there because that's just adding to this again. It's clearly then if those are the, the thoughts that Aaron Gordon has on this, that Anthony Edwards shouldn't be fine for using a homophobic slur on camera like, like there's there's clearly then a bigger issue in the league and that maybe certain players um need to be more properly educated on this matter and to understand that even if they're they're thinking it's this throwaway comment it's not and to see people with their platform with their scale of you know fame even if you want to call it, like we're talking about Andy Edwards the rising superstar Aaron Gordon's like the fourth best player on his own team or whatever, however you want to frame that, like that's still a pretty big platform. He's still a recognizable face. Uh, and his brand's probably even a little bit larger than someone who might be the fourth or fifth best player on the team, just because of what we know about him from the, you know, his scale of recognition from the dunk contest days. Uh, but that's wildly disappointing. And so this is still clearly an issue. And I think it needs to be addressed more. Even if you don't even want to say forcefully, let's say at least convincingly specifically to where it's just not looped under this offensive and derogatory language. It's it's something different. It's it's showing a prejudice against a huge group of people, uh, of important of important fans that the league should be trying to ensure not not just like feel safe in in life, but feel like they could just root for this league without having to you know, grapple with a player from a team that they might root for, a player that they just want to root for, um, using this language off camera when they're not going to be caught. Like this shouldn't be 
these homophobic slurs, all this language, all this prejudice should not be as common as it is, as casual as it as it is. Um, so th those are my thoughts on that. And it's not to say Anthony Edwards cannot redeem himself. And I would encourage everyone to listen to uh, an episode of the Dane Moore podcast. He covers the Timberwolves. Uh, his podcast is great in general, but he spoke with Chris Hine, an openly gay um, sports reporter who, who covers the Wolves. He's, he's among the beat writers, I believe. They had a, I, went, I went and listened. They had a fantastic conversation about this, uh, and I thought Hine did a great job just unpacking everything, and it was awesome to hear his perspective. So don't listen to some just random-ass person like me ramble on about this. I'd encourage you to check out that podcast, but that's where I sort of land on that. Uh, we have a lot of injury news to get to as well. Robert Williams the third, another another uh, knee issue for my guy here. He will undergo arthroscopic surgery or procedure on his left knee, uh, and he's expected to need four to six weeks to recover, which means that he will miss part of the season. Uh, it's also this is an issue that's come six months after he had that initial left knee surgery. He, he played through pain during the NBA finals. Woj said that the procedure is being described as a cleanup and it's, it is expected quote to allow Williams to return to full strength early in the regular season. Uh, the Celtics, they've already lost Daniel Gallinari. Now you're losing Robert Williams. The third, uh, is this, I mean, it's a loss. I think they will be fine. They have the depth to in the front court to weather this overall, they probably are going to, you know, we have, they have Al Horford and Grant Williams. That's going to help them a ton. Luke Cornett's probably going to have a triple doubles now for forever. I guess they did cut Bruno Caboclo. So he would be out of that uh, front court consideration there. It just, it's just something to watch because Robert Williams, the third has been dealing with this left knee specifically has been dogging him since the end of the 2020, 21 season, I believe. And so to have this many knee issues, even though he's so young and then also just, you lose an element from your offense without him for a team that's not, doesn't generate a ton of raw rim pressure overall. The Celtics were 22nd, and the, sh the share of their field goal attempts that came at, at the rim last season. Now you lose someone who is just your best pick and roll option wh when you're looking at the, the raw rim pressure. Al Horford is more of a, he's going to pop off screens. Ditto for Grant Williams. Did same thing for, for Luke Cornett there too. Again, I don't think it hurts them a ton, especially because Al Horford and Grant Williams are like good and dynamic in those situations when you're looking at what they can do from the perimeter, but you're going to miss Williams. And he's just one of the best switch defenders as a center in the league. And then you also look at what he's able to do as a decision maker on short rolls or off the rolls in general. This isn't someone who's just catching and finishing lobs or just being able to finish at the rim. Like he can make passes on the move and he's a good screen setter. That's, that's big for the Celtics. And after already losing Gallinari, who I don't think would have factored into the center rotation, but knowing how the Celtics like to play a little bigger up front, losing someone who's six ten, and then losing a Robert Williams, like six, nine, but has like the athletic pop uh, to make it seem like he's seven, eight or whatever, when he's on the floor, having that presence, it, it really just sucks. Did miss while I was gone. Dennis Schroeder signed a one-year deal with the Los Angeles Lakers because they clearly needed more guards. I don't think this is insignificant and I'm sure you know, the jokes you saw about him turning down, he's making like 2.8, a little over that million dollars this year. Uh, that's probably about an eighth, a ninth, maybe a 10th of what he would have about it more like less than a 10th of what he would have made uh, in his four year, $84 million deal with the Lakers that he had turned down a couple years back. Uh, I don't mind the flyer in general for a minimum salary. He gives you Dennis Schroeder's like, he's probably too high usage for the Lakers, but if you want to have him run some second units, 
he did show that final year in OKC, he shot 41 plus percent on catch and shoot threes. He's been a little over 35% on catch and shoot threes for the past two seasons, one of which he spent with the Lakers. That's not really high enough to be locked down. He does give you some rim pressure on the ball, needs to get rid of those junky in between pull ups. Like he had the year in OKC when he, uh, when Chris Paul and Shea Gilders Alexander were both there, where he absolutely tore it up. But aside from that, he's been just sort of uh, mediocre to sub mediocre from those areas. It's interesting, though, that the Lakers sign him, trade for Patrick Beverly. They already have, uh, you know, Kendrick Nunn is like the, the hottest thing since sliced bread in Los Angeles, apparently, right now when you talk to people. And then Lonnie Walker the fourth is just sitting there. What does this mean for Russell Westbrook? Why would the Lakers do that? If I was to paraphrase Brian Windhorst, uh, add another guard to the fold. Does it, do I think this makes it more likely Russell Westbrook is traded? I'm going to say no. I do think it makes it more likely that the Lakers decide to bring him off the bench, which is something that seemed like it was on the table from the moment they acquired Patrick Beverly. Maybe that's something that if they don't explore right, right out of the gate, they explore uh, you know, a few games or a little bit more into the season. I don't hate the flyer for the Lakers, but it is just like, they're setting themselves up for memes here if they don't trade Russell Westbrook, and it certainly intensifies the speculation. There was the report today that the the Lakers and Pacers talks fell apart for a healed Turner trade that would have put Russell Westbrook in Indiana. The Pacers wanted two unprotected first, 27 and 29, and the Lakers balked at that. I kind of understand both sides there. Like The Lakers, if it's me, I just do it because I think Miles Turner is really good. He can not only play with Anthony Davis, but you could close games with Anthony Davis, and that would actually work. But he heals valuable to that team as sort of a, a, a knockdown shooter who can score just – it's functional shooting. You're not, not a lot of shooters score in motion with LeBron James. We've seen in the past a lot of guys just really planting themselves at a standstill. But he has the ability to hit some pull-ups off the dribble, to fly around screens, to really fan out in transition. And I don't think his deal is that terrible. The Lakers don't want to put long-term money on their books, and Heald has guaranteed money for 23 24 where the Lakers could have near max space. I don't know if they're still hoping in light of redacted's um, most recent stupid ass tweet uh, that maybe the trade talks for the nets could reignite. I, I understand not wanting to give up the rest of your future draft equity without bringing back a real star in return. And miles Turner is going to be a free agent. If you don't think you can keep him, that's something to consider. I'd probably do it. Certainly if I'm the Pacers, if I'm the Pacers, I might even consider it if you can get one pick in a swap where it's like a 26 swap and then the 27 first. That's something I might still consider. Uh, maybe they revisit that. Maybe there's another deal that materializes, but the Lakers just, I'm holding off on their team look ahead specifically because I, I think that their rosters are going to change. So they'll probably be one of the last teams that we do for anyone who cares about what happens with um, scheduling podcasts. The next bit of depressing news, Shea Gilgis-Alexander has a grade two MCL sprain in his left knee. He will be out for at least OKC's first two preseason games and reevaluated in two weeks. That just sucks. This season at OKC is going from enthralling for me as a national observer to just like, oh, we're about to fucking watch them shut down guys again and really slow play this. Chet Holmgren's out for the year. Uh, Shea Gillis-Alexander missed the final 10 games of the season with a, a right ankle injury. Now he has a sprained MCL in his left knee. I imagine the Thunder will continue to bring him along slowly, not just because they're not trying to win this season, but he is also, until actual these this trade speculation proves to be accurate, he is their future. Uh, he and Chet Holmgren, I would say even more so than Josh Giddy. Without Shea Gillis-Alexander, does he miss some games to start the regular season? I don't know. This doesn't seem too serious, but it sucks. Um, if he does miss the start of the regular season, that will be really a test of how far Josh Giddy has come and can he sort of lead the charge as a primary playmaker and perhaps be more aggressive as a scorer. 
Uh, but I want to see Shea play a bunch this season. He is one of the, I still think he's one of the most underrated players in the league, even though a bunch of fans from different teams are really lusting and pining after uh, his services on the trade market for him. That should not technically exist because publicly he has not requested a trade and everything he said runs counter. And even the way that the Thunder have acted runs counter to that logic. They have all the picks in the world. They made a consolidation trade for Usman Jang. They signed Shea to a five-year extension. Not that they wouldn't have done that even if they were looking to trade him. This just seems like we're rushing the talk there. And my thoughts are well-documented. You go go check out a previous podcast or go check out our Thunder Look Ahead, which is up on YouTube and in your podcast feeds where we get into that uh, with Olivia Punchall, um, formerly of, the da- of Daily Thunder. A little bit, but yeah, I, this doesn't seem too serious for Shea, but it is something to monitor. He's dealt with stuff. Some of that has probably been overly cautiously handled. That's a terrible way to frame it. The Thunder have probably been more cautious than they need to be with some of his injuries or invented some of those injuries, but it's just something to keep an eye on uh, because Shea is like part of what makes his game. So captivating is his ability to just change these speeds on a dime. And if he's dealing with some knee stuff, uh, or that becomes habitual issues where he's dealing with ankle and knee issues that could compromise him a little bit on the offensive end. Finally, Lonzo ball will be reevaluated in four to six weeks after a second left knee surgery. The first one happened eight months ago to pair uh, a torn meniscus that was in the same knee that left knee. This is also the third surgery Lonzo has now had on his left knee. This is big for the Bulls, who at full strength, they're probably a better team than people are crediting just because they forgot like how long the Bulls were good last season. But there was a material change in the way they were able to operate. Not, not on offense as much, but on defense when Lonzo first exited the lineup. Remember, he the day after Christmas, I think it was, he went into COVID protocols, and then he was dealing with a knee injury shortly thereafter. After, um, he came back for a bit. The Bulls were blown out into two of like his final games. Uh, and then he's done for the, the rest of the season to deal with that left knee injury. Losing him is huge. They were, I mean, they'll break it down. Before Christmas, the Bulls were 19 and 10, nine games over 500, had a top six net, net rating, were in the top eight of both defense and offense. After Christmas, which is when they first started missing Lonzo Ball, and then he really only played in how many games was it? I'll check really quick. Uh, after Christmas, he only played in a total of six games. So, but after Christmas, they still were over 500 in general, 27 to 26, but they were 21st in net rating and dropped to 27th in uh, points allowed per possession. So they went from eighth in points allowed per possession before the Lonzo injury slash uh, entry into health and safety protocols to 27th. That's a huge drop off. Uh, if you're going to have a healthy Alex Caruso, uh, if, if Patrick Williams is even going to be healthy and you expect to see a bunch of progress from him, that should that should help you sort of navigate those waters. And just having uh, Goran Dragic, having DeMar DeRozan, having Zach Levine, if he's healthy, you'll be able to make it work on offense. But still, defensively is where I'd be more concerned because Lonzo and Caruso are part of what allowed the Bulls to uh, play so aggressively early on and would be part of why they're able to play so aggressively now or why lineups where DeRozan at the four might actually work. And I think overall, if just for this team, you want to see more of what should be their best lineups, which is not a luxury we had last season. And so I probably lower on the bulls, even with a healthy Lonzo, uh, then I don't even know if it's consensus, but I'm a little bit lower. Uh, even when considering their peak from last season, just looking at how much the 
uh, Eastern Conference improved in general and how deep it sort of seems at the top now. But that, look, in the 189 possessions, which is not a lot, but the 189 possessions that Vooch, DeRozan, Levine, Caruso, and Ball played, and I looking at this roster, that's still their best five-man unit to me. Uh, you could try and sandwich Patrick Williams in there for somebody, but who? After the season DeRozan had, it would have to be Caruso or Bust. And, you know, I, I don't... I'm just more intrigued defensively by Caruso ball pairing than, uh, you know, if, if you have Williams at the the four and then having ball in the backcourt with Levine. But that unit, Lonzo, Caruso, Levine, DeRozan, and Vooch, plus 20.6 points per 100 possessions. They just only played 189 possessions. Again, not a lot, but the Bulls didn't have a kind of ton of continuity to begin with. Their most used lineup only logged uh, 521 possessions. And even that unit that I outlined that didn't see a ton of time together was their fourth most played lineup on the season. So want Lonzo to get healthy, but that's a long time to miss. And he's already missed so much time that when he does return, what is he going to look like? Is there going to need to be a grace period there? If you're the bulls right now, not only do you need, like let's not forget Levine is dealing with knee stuff, but not only do you need uh, Levine to stay healthy, Caruso to stay healthy, but like you need, and Williams to stay healthy. You need meaningful contributions once again from Io Desunmu and then Patrick Williams to be probably even better than he showed um, when he was healthy last season. And you, you probably at this point need to bank on just like hitting somewhere that we're not talking about. Like is, like is Goran Dragic more effective than we're thinking right now? Does Vooch have a bounce back year as a scorer? He did fine from two point range last year, but does his outside shot return? Uh, does Kobe white all of a sudden make strides here? They need one of, you know, we talk a lot about Williams and his development and then Caruso and Lonzo remaining healthy, even Zach Levine remaining healthy. And we talk probably a little bit more about the backup five situation. Now you brought Derek Jones Jr. Back. You signed Andre Drummond. You have Tony Williams still, flo- Tony Bradley, excuse me, still floating around this roster, but you now have a sudden kind of need to hit on like, Oh, can I just, just like explode again? Or can we get development from Kobe white or is Goran Dragic uh, or even a Dale and Terry? Like, will we see him at all this season? Like you're going to need one or two, just, I don't want to say unforeseen developments, but just one or two silver linings that we're not really focusing or zeroing in too much on right now that we're not counting on right now uh, to probably hang with the upper crust of the Eastern conference, which just includes the Cavs after training for Donovan Mitchell, a healthy Sixer squad, the Celtics, even with the injuries they're dealing with the box with Chris Middleton coming back, the Miami heat are still floating around there. I'm, I'm still pretty high on the Toronto Raptors, even though I have questions about their half court offense, there, it's just going to be a bloodbath through the top six of the East. And there's no spot there, even if the Bulls were healthy, I would say, where they would be guaranteed one of those six spots. I mean, like if we're being brutally objective, I mean, would I top six, my def, my definitives would be Boston, Milwaukee, Philadelphia. I'm going to throw Toronto in there. And then like Miami, I would have to put them in there. And then just like uh, Atlanta or Cleveland or Brooklyn. Yeah, that's just seven teams. And I didn't even get to the Bulls there. And like those eight teams, what should be the top eight teams in the East, barring any surprises, Miami, Boston, Milwaukee, Philly, Toronto, Chicago, Brooklyn, Atlanta, and then throw Cleveland to be top nine. Holy hell. Like there, yeah, there's some variance there. Like I have no idea what the fuck the Nets are going to be. And I would never bet on them, but the Cavs or the Hawks specifically could be due for a major jump in raw win totals from the 43 slash 44 that they won last year. And then you have the Bucks, Heat, Celtics, Sixers, who are very much in the not going anywhere persuasion. I think the Raptors, having just won 48 games, they're even better 
maybe they don't win as many games or maybe it's still dead on. It's another 48 games, but they're just better. They're deeper than they were last season. And so the Bulls, my point here is the Bulls need Lonzo Ball. I think there's aspects of their team where they are better without him than we saw last season because of all the other stuff that they were dealing with and maybe some internal development they could get. But he is just mission critical to their defensive success. Uh, It's good to be back. I missed you all, even though I guess I didn't really leave too much. Please remember to subscribe wherever you're getting this podcast, YouTube, Apple, and Spotify, specifically download every episode. Subscribe on every platform on both YouTube and then a podcast player. It means a lot. Throw out recommendations, shout us out on Twitter, retweet the promos I put out there. Again, it really all means the world when you can pitch in and help grow the community. Join our Discord, the link to which is in the podcast description, along with all of our socials. Until next time, and as always, I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, the glorious, Frank Nielakina, and I don't know why I'm making this the outro because you're about to listen to some what NBA what ifs. What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am a very pumped, if a little exhausted, Dan Favalli coming at you with our final installment of this NBA what if series. Before we get started, just my usual plea for everyone to subscribe to this podcast wherever they consume it. Apple, Spotify, of course. If you follow the show and download every episode, that's the biggest way to help us climb up those basketball podcast charts. If you've already done that, hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Like, comment on our videos to help the algorithm love us back. Um, Follow us on the socials. The links to that are in the podcast description. Please, please, pretty please join our Discord. The link to that is in the podcast description. And if you've done all those things still... Consider shouting us out on Twitter if you enjoy our content. I put out a lot of it. These are shorter podcasts, but we have a lot longer ones. I've been going almost daily throughout the offseason. We've done a lot of cool stuff. Look-aheads are already underway, and they will fire back up when I I return from uh, my long-awaited vacation um, that I'm trying to work ahead to be free for. You don't care about that, though. Um, so again, shout outs on Twitter, retweet our promos, tell people about us. If you know, they like the basketball podcast, I always get just super excited. Not look, people DM me a bunch. And I appreciate that about our listeners telling how, telling me how much they appreciate my effort, how much they appreciate the content. Discord is great. Uh, the public shout outs on Twitter or in those threads where people are trying to look for the best sports or basketball podcasts. Those mean the world as well. And finally, before we get started, just a brief reminder how this works. This is the final installment of NBA What Ifs. It is a project I did for Bleach Report a couple months ago. With their blessing, I am putting out an audio version of it. I get that these can be sometimes tough to follow. I've released them by division in these short, you know, 14 to 20 minute increments in hopes that makes it easier. I've practiced reading them. I've redone a bunch of readings because I was stammering through. There are still some hiccups, but I do think it's at least consumable. Um, and interesting. And the way I handled this project was I asked one person who covers, follows, or roots for every team, a smart person, an awesome person, what their biggest what if would be for that franchise. I took their responses, included some of my own words, and, and that's the project you will be listening to now. If you've not checked out the other versions, head over to YouTube where they've been released to single team clips. Uh, you can check out our podcast feed. I release these by division. We are in the final stage, the sixth and final NBA what if episode, and it is none other than the Southwest division. We begin up next in this NBA what if project with the Dallas Mavericks. Initially, I approached the Dallas Mavericks as part of this shindig determined not to go the what if they drafted Giannis Attentacumpo in 2013 route. He was considered a stab in the dark reach by the Milwaukee Bucks at number 15. We can't harp too much on the teams that went different directions. Though, to be fair, Dallas later playing the he was on its radar card doesn't help. Steve Nash's departure in 2004 is my pick. 
His exit almost assuredly cost the Mavs another title during that Dirk Nowitzki era. At the very least, the organization would have more finals appearances under its belt. That did tempt Lauren Gunn, who is a co-host of the Gunshot podcast and also a credentialed NBA media member, but she ultimately went a different direction. Here's what she told me. This is an incredibly fascinating question because the correct answer is absolutely what happens if Nash stays. But my mind can't help but go to the post-2011 Dirk years. After letting the team go, after bringing home the trophy, they were in a position the following year to reel in the top free agent of that class, Darren Williams. In fact, the Mavs had the first meeting with Williams. And years later, he said that he was going to sign with Dallas, but was turned off by the fact that Mark Cuban neglected to show up to their meeting. Pairing him with Dirk while they were both in their primes would have likely put Dallas back toward the top of the Western Conference. Unfortunately, the Mavericks didn't land him that year, and the slow transition into a rebuild commenced. That, I, I don't disagree with how, uh, how Lauren framed this. And it's actually you know, more tantalizing. I think I'm probably, than I, I gave it credit for before she described it to me, just because I think we remember what uh, Williams sort of became. And so I very much dig this view. Extending actual title windows are more bankable what-ifs than carving out theoretical ones around Giannis, for example. Uh, but that's why the Nash pick is still up there. Let's also be real. We were all flabbergasted, if not offended, the Mavs opted to move so thoroughly away from their title-winning core in 2011. D-Will's prime ended up not lasting nearly as long as most expected, but the next two to three years of Dallas basketball would have unfurled at a much higher level had he joined the party in 2012. Next up in this NBA what-if exercise, we have the Houston Rockets. It's nice when the what-if decision at hand boasts a glaringly obvious consensus. And as Salman Ali of Red Nation Hoops outlined, that's just what we have for the Houston Rockets. Here's what he told me. There are a lot of contenders here, but the number one spot is a no-brainer. What if Chris Paul never suffers a hamstring injury in the 2018 Western Conference Finals? There's just no other scenario that directly could have led to an additional banner for the Rockets. He's right. Context is, of course, king. In this instance, though, it's probably also painful. As Ali also wrote, the Rockets were on the brink of taking a 3-2 to two lead over the Warriors and had all the momentum of the series in their favor. Home court advantage was theirs, and it seemed like they had figured out the Warriors on both ends. Defensively, the Rockets perfected a switch-everything scheme they crafted that summer, specifically for the Warriors. Paul was an integral point-of-attack defender for, for Houston. On offense, James Harden led a masterclass against the Warriors for the first three and a half frames. Paul, one of the greatest crunch time performers in NBA history, was their closer in the fourth quarter. The audacity of my media colleagues to equate an injury to Andre Iguodala, Golden State's fifth most important player at the time, to an injury to one of the greatest point guards of all time in his prime was laughable in the moment and even more ludicrous in hindsight. Here's the caveat to what Ali says. The Warriors still could have beaten the Rockets even if Paul had never gotten injured. At the same time, the end result leaves open the possibility that Ali is right. Houston lost Game 7 by single digits without CP3. And if we believe the Rockets get past the Dynastic Warriors, we might as well go ahead and believe that their 65-win core also would have dispatched the 2018 Cavaliers in the finals. As Ali closed, the Rockets team should go down. That Rockets team should go down as one of the greatest in NBA history to never win a championship but their collective unpopularity may prevent them from being remembered as such. I definitely agree with this. Even if you think there are bigger Rockets what-ifs, the fact that this specific team with Chris Paul and James Harden 
isn't remembered more fondly for his 2018 postseason run very much is indicative, unfairly so, of just their reputation, having to do with some of the individuals on the team, and then just this track record of Chris Paul and James Harden always coming up short, where there are some valid criticisms of both, but many of them veer away from reality. This has to be the what-if, though, and you have to appreciate, if nothing else, even though they lost, the Rockets were one of the few teams that italics went for it when the Warriors were at their absolute. Next up in our NBA what-if exercises, we have the Memphis Grizzlies. Could the 2014-2015 Memphis Grizzlies have derailed the start of the Golden State Warriors dynasty? Amy Stagmeyer of the Flyer Grizz blog thinks so. I will forever maintain, she wrote, that if Mike Conley doesn't get his face broken by C.J. McCollum in the first round in 2015 and Tony Allen's hamstring issues were resolved, the Grizzlies would have been the 2015 champions. Memphis would have won the series against Golden State and gone on to beat Houston in the Western Conference Finals and ultimately beat Cleveland to win the championship. And we would all be having a very different discussion in the years since. Wow. Wow. This is spicy. I love it. It's not unfounded. Mike Conley even agrees. This is what he says. This is what Mike Conley said during a 2021 appearance on the old man and the three podcast with JJ Reddick. That series is our what if more than anything. If we win that series, who knows if the Warriors are the Warriors dynasty that everyone sees today. I get what Conley and Amy are, are saying. The Grizzlies jumped out to a 2-1 to one lead in that series and for a while appeared to be in control. But the Warriors ended up mismatching their way to a seven-game victory in large part because they had Andrew Bogut, quotes, guarding Tony Allen, who was an offensive non-entity. Would Golden State have gotten away with that shift if Allen wasn't harboring a hamstring injury? Eh, maybe. How much better off would the Grizzlies have been if Conley, playing in a face mask, didn't shoot sub-40% on twos and sub-22% on threes over the final four games? Who knows? Leaning towards alternative selections is reasonable and probably my preference. Uh, the Grizzlies still would have needed to beat the Rockets, who weren't yet the Caps Lock Rockets, but also weren't stepping stones. The 2015 Cavs would have been beatable if both Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving still got hurt in the finals, but they weren't barren of fight. Even so... Amy's decision feels like the right call. And if it isn't for me, it probably needs to be Zach Randolph's game seven suspension in the first round of the 2014 playoffs or the Grizzlies drafting Hashim to beat at number two in a 2009 class that saw James Harden, Steph Curry, and DeMar DeRozan all go after him and still in the top 10. Our next team up in this NBA what if exercise is the New Orleans Pelicans. Spotting what ifs throughout the New Orleans Pelicans history isn't particularly difficult. There's the obvious, what if Chris Paul and Anthony Davis never ask out angles, and a few AD injury moments to boot. And then we always have the, what if the CP3 to the Lakers trade was never basketball reason into oblivion? My personal pick is Game 7 of the 2008 Western Conference semifinals. What if they beat the Spurs? Would they have been able to punch out the Lakers? And if so, could they have then upended the eventual champion Celtics? For his part, Brute Crew Media's Shamit Dua went with what feels like the actual correct choice. Here's what he told me. The biggest what-ifs for the Pelicans in recent memory is the DeMarcus Cousins injury in 2018. New Orleans just was just finding its stride that January when Boogie went down in a win against the then-dominant Rockets. The Pelicans would later go on to trade for Nikola Mirotic and sweep the Portland Trailblazers that same season before falling short in five games against the Kevin Durant-era Warriors. They probably don't win a title that season, but Boogie and Davis would have provided the dubs with a matchup they had never faced before. Cousins was also up for a new contract that coming offseason. How does the team 
build around the Twin Towers and Drew Holiday moving forward? Could they have outlasted the Warriors core and been around for the bubble ring? Would Dell Demps and Alvin Gentry still be the lead executives of the franchise? So many questions we'll just never know the answer to. That from Shamit is perfect. And I don't know that I consider it. I, I definitely didn't consider it in this way going into the exercise. And then when I thought more about it, there's another potential implication to do his answer. Does the Twin Towers approach become in vogue sooner if Boogie and AD had stayed together for the long haul? We're seeing a quasi-revival of the dual big lineups, not just in Boston with Al Horford and RW3, or with Cleveland in Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, and now Minnesota with Cat and Rudy Gobert, but also in places like Memphis with Triple J and Steven Adams, and even in Orlando with Mo Bamba and Wendell Carter Jr. this past season with Paolo Bancaro entering the mix now. Boogie and AD share specific similarities with the Cat-Gobert pairing we're about to watch. Maybe this approach would have reignited sooner if the Pelicans had gotten an actual window with their own version. Our next team up in this NBA what-if exercise, and it will also be the final team, team number 30 if you've been following us all the way, the San Antonio Spurs. Where would the San Antonio Spurs and Kawhi Leonard be if Zaza Pachulia never stepped under his left ankle in game one of the 2017 Western Conference Finals? And, and hell, where would Golden State and Toronto be if that moment in time was removed from history? This set of questions is equal parts tantalizing and emotionally eviscerating for Spurs fans, which is why Paul Garcia from Project Spurs presumably chose to focus on it. Here's what he told me. Yes, the Warriors were a juggernaut with Kevin Durant and won 67 games that season and eventually the title. But the Spurs were also an elite team, winning 61 games and holding a 21-point lead with 8.28 left in the third quarter of game one. What if Leonard didn't get hurt and the Spurs won game one? They would have stolen home court advantage, and then, who knows? Both teams had top 10 offenses and defenses that season. The element a title contender needs. That game was the last time the Spurs were a title contender, Garcia continued. Leonard played only nine games in 2017-2018, and he demanded a trade and ended up in Toronto the following summer. Had the Spurs defeated the Warriors and then won the title in 2016-2017, does the Leonard-Spurs relationship not fall apart considering he would now be a two-time NBA champion with them. This is a, a great point. And I think I might've even like skipped over it and gone right to what if the Spurs never traded Kawhi, uh, even though he was asking for out, uh, but we need not even rewrite, rewrite the outcome of the 2017 Western conference finals to ponder an alternate reality in San Antonio. That injury was the beginning of the end for those Spurs. And it was the subsequent quad injury to Leonard that became the source of so much discord and distance between he and the organization. So many other what-ifs since were born from that moment in Game 1, including what if the Spurs accepted a different, more future-focused return in the Kawhi trade? Or how about does he even still injure his white right quad? Do the Spurs put up enough of a fight versus the Warriors, if not upset them outright, to keep things hunky-dory a while longer? Would they even have needed to move Kawhi? No other what-if comes close to matching this one. There's a case for Game 6 or even Game 7 of the 2013 NBA Finals, but losing that series drove the 2014 championship push that we all, as basketball fans, not only Spurs fans, hold near and dear to our heart. The biggest what-if for the Spurs is just almost assuredly has to be traced back to Kawhi. And it's that moment, that injury, that proved to be, unknowingly, the beginning of the end. That does it for our NBA What If Project. I do hope you enjoyed this quick digestible series. If you have feedback 
on it. Hit me on my DMs at Danfa Valley on Twitter. Join our Discord. DM me there. I'd rather you not shame me publicly in the chat amongst everyone. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. Ratings and reviews help a ton as well, as does downloading every episode. Subscribe to us on YouTube. And without further delay, I leave you to everyone's favorite portion of the podcast. The shout out to the one, the only, the forever, Frank Nielakee.